0: sit down you know and really get into a new book i think to myself who can tell this story best or who can bring something some kind of you know vital information to the story who do we need to hear from
1: You're listening to WERA-FM 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. My guest today is Mary Kubica, author of The Other Misses, published this month by Park Row Books. Mary's novels, including the much-loved thriller The Good Girl, have become New York Times and international bestsellers. One review said this about Mary Kubica. She is a master of atmospherics who can turn almost any location into a swirling cesspool of creepy possibility. Joining me by phone to discuss her new novel is Mary Kubica. Mary, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here today.
1: The Other Misses is your sixth novel. I'd love to know, what is the origin behind the story? What is the first character voice that came to you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The Other Misses is, is it's a story about um, a Chicago family. They inherit a home on on an island off the coast of Maine, and it's kind of a good time for them to leave Chicago behind. They've had a number of personal and professional hardships in their life of late, and so it's it's a good time for a fresh start. And then all sorts of, you know, disaster strikes once they arrive in Maine. But the, the book is told from three different narratives and there's Sadie who is the mother in this family that moves to Maine and then we hear from a woman named Camille and a narrator named Mouse and actually it was Sadie's voice that came to me first of these um, sort of Sadie's whole storyline. And I kind of, and once I had written her story, I ventured off from there to create some of the other characters. But yes, yeah, she was the one that first spoke to me. This is a tricky book to get into because there are so many, so many spoilers. But the first kind of inkling of an idea for this story was actually more of the twist at the end.
1: Is that typical for you when you start a novel that the character voice comes maybe before the setting or some other piece of the storyline?
0: You know, usually are my my ideas. They're they're kind of um, you know a problem that needs to be solved. I usually think of it that way, and so I I never have my ideas fully fleshed out when I begin writing the novel. I just have a starting point, really, but I feel like character voice comes next, or at least one of the characters. All of, my, all of my novels are told from multiple points of view, so I feel like I have a pretty firm grasp on at least one of those voices, and I start in there and get to know that character a little bit more, um, get to kind of explore this problem that I'm highlighting in the book and, and where it's going to go, and at the same time, I have to develop some of the other character voices and really start to see where this novel is going to go.
1: Well, I mentioned in the introduction um, that you've been called a master of atmospherics, and the your new novel, *The Other Misses*, it's largely set in Maine, although we do get some Chicago flashbacks. I'd love to know what drew you to this island off the coast of Maine, where the story is mostly set and I have to say I found the winter and the ferry service to the mainland so isolating and it just created this immersive atmosphere
0: I have time in Maine, once upon a time, I swore that I was going to set every single book of mine in Chicago because it's home for me. But it was it was time to kind of break out molds a little bit. With uh, the other misses, I, I really needed a location that was very secluded and isolated. And, you know, this island off the coast of Maine just really fit the bill for that. One of those places that I've been enamored with since I was for as long as I can remember, you know, and I just sort of fantasized about going there. And then about four years ago, my family and I did go to Maine. We actually had started in Boston and we rented a car and drove north along the coast of Maine. You know, I wanted to make the setting for this book just as, as remote as I possibly could. You know, and there are like 4,000 islands off the coast of Maine. Some of them were inhabited than others. But the island that I've created and the other misses, It's fictional because I wanted to sort of be able to do with it as I pleased. Logistically, I wanted to know how this worked. You know, I'm from Chicago, so so writing about a main island was very different. Um, But on this specific island, it's late fall, turning into winter, the weather has shifted. You know, there's questions about, will this ferry service that brings people to and from the mainland, will it be able to run when the weather turns really dreary? Um, And what happens if the bay freezes? Then how can the boats possibly go back and forth? And there's just a sense of being trapped on the islands.
1: I absolutely felt that. In fact, I really wondered logistically for the locals that live on these little main islands, how, how do they manage in the winter? Because you have scenes where one of the characters is taking a boat to the mainland to get to school. And I thought, my goodness, what happens if they can't go to school or what happens if someone becomes seriously ill? That sense of isolation and, and just being trapped is runs central through the novel. <laughs>
0: eye-opening for me, again, because I'm from Chicago where, you know, hospitals and doctors are plentiful, to see, uh, you know, what really happens if somebody has a middle-of-the-night emergency on this island. How do they transport them? And, you know, I read stories and, and, you know, brought this into the book as well, you know, where you might have a sole police officer on the island who doubles as an EMT. And, um, you know, you have to get an injured or sick person to the shore where an emergency boat could meet them and transport them to the hospital on the mainland. You know, and you think about the time that that would take. And, you know, it just it really is a completely different lifestyle.
1: So it was always your intention to set the book in late fall, early winter to bring that element of isolation into the story.
0: You know, I don't I don't know if it was always my intent, but as I started doing some research and realizing, you know, this the, the tension would really be heightened if there was the weather working against them. You know, I, I sort of loved that, and I loved to make the book a little bit more atmospheric by adding, you know, there's there's a blizzard and, and all sorts of things happening weather-wise that really um, add to the tension.
1: In other novels, you have also created a kind of contrast, a rural-urban contrast. The The Good Girl featured Chicago, where you live, and remote Minnesota, and another novel, Don't You Cry, brings readers again to Chicago and then a small Michigan town. Can you talk about that rural-urban contrast that you like to bring into your narratives?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I love that contrast. I I think that it's just really eye opening you know how the setting in general can change the narrative um, you know here in a bigger in a bigger city you're sort of you know you're lost you're one of one of many and i think that there's a sense of isolation within that but i think that just the atmospheric change so significantly. When you're in a big town, you have access to public transportation, and police are, you know, more plentiful than they are in the more remote settings. Those remote settings, um, like in The Good Girl, that that's probably the most remote that I've, I've written, where we have just a couple of people living isolated in a cabin with literally almost nobody else around, but to small town Michigan, where, you know, the, the gossip is rampant, and, you know, everybody kind of is in everybody's business. I think that that just, changes the way that people relate to each other, sort of people's mindset and the the psychology of the characters. And so I love to just have that contrast In my books, Um, anytime I go, the more remote, it's definitely stepping a little bit outside of my comfort zone because I'm just not as used to that. But I love to do the research and learn about new places, even if, you know, like as in The Other Misses, I said before that the island is fictional, but it's based on, you know, kind of a a mix of a number of real places. So I just love to explore what life is like in those settings.
1: Yes, and I actually just realized that all of your remote relocations begin with the letter M. You've got Minnesota, Michigan, and Maine. Are we going to Missouri or Montana next in your next novel? I would love to explore Montana. (laughs) But Montana would be, would probably be a good place, yes. Well, you know, I'm always interested in the structure of a book, and you mentioned earlier, Mary, that um, you have multiple points of view, and they're they're all fascinating, not only for what they reveal, but also for when a character is revealed. So without discussing too much plot, can can you maybe just talk about your process for mapping the story and deciding who gets to say what and when?
0: You've probably heard the the phrases platter and panzer, and I am definitely a pantser. I'm the kind of author who just likes to fly by the seat of my pants. So usually there isn't a whole lot of forethought into the structure of my book when I get into writing it. I'm, I'm the author that just kind of likes to dive in and see where the story takes me and where where these characters take me. Um, and so often a character will do or say something. You know, just an idea will come to me in the moment and the author does or says something and it just totally shifts my whole perspective on that, that character or um, just where the story is going. And it's, it's just this wonderful, spontaneous thing that happens. Usually, I'll start my novels with just one of one of the narrators, and I will actually write his or her storyline in its entirety before going back and writing the next narrator. So with The Other Misses, as I said earlier, we hear from um, three different narrators. For the most part, we hear from Sadie Camille and then a character named Mouse. So I wrote all of Sadie's storyline. And it's, it's wonderful because as I'm writing Sadie's storyline, you know, my brain is starting to think on, well, who else is going to tell this story and, you know, how is that going to go and so then I I jumped back when I was done and I I wrote Camille's and so at that point it's really fun to try and create Camille's storyline so that it can tie into Sadie's. I, you know, end up with like three little novellas that I I then kind of shuffle together and it takes some editing to be sure because sometimes things are happening at the wrong points. I'm revealing things too soon and so I have to shuffle some of it around to make sure that that it all makes sense
1: I am so surprised to hear you describe yourself as a pantser I was (laughs) sure that you had like an excel spreadsheet with everything plotted out this is such a suspenseful story and the scene some of the scenes are are really um gripping almost very difficult to read how do you know when a scene is ready
0: that's hard. You know, it's hard to I think the one of the hardest things for an author I think is to be done, you know, with a scene, with the book, no matter what it is, just to be done. And from the authors I've spoken to, it's the the reason that we can't go back and read our own works once they're published, because we always want to be revising. So it's hard to know. I mean it's it's sort of a gut feeling, you know, when I think that I've said everything that I need to say and the scene is as impactful as it can be. You know, when I don't feel like I can bring anything new or better to it. A lot of it comes from my editor's insight too, though. You know, I, th- I think for an author, um, I love to write just completely alone. Once I, once I have a proposal approved and I'm off and running, then my editor won't hear from me until I have a solid draft to share. But at that point, the feedback that I get from them is so insightful and it really helps me have kind of a clearer picture of the book or how others will read the book. And so so with their their feedback, then I can really refine some of those those scenes and chapters. But it's hard, you know, I think knowing when it, you're done is one of the hardest things for an author.
1: Too. I am sure.
0: Yeah, you know, just always want to be improving it. You
1: always yeah. want to be tweaking it. Yes, that makes sense. And I guess a related question, I bet you get this a lot at your readings. How do you transition from writing these difficult narratives, and then kind of Switch back to real life. I mean, when you're done writing for the day and you sit down at the dinner table with your children, how do you switch back and forth?
0: Definitely hard because even when I'm not actively writing, you know, I'm I'm thinking about it all the time. It's hard to it's hard to turn that off. My family is wonderful. My kids are are at an age. My daughter's read one of my books. My son has not read any yet, but they know they know the plot. They know the twist. I mean, we sit down at the dinner table and they help me work through, you know, tricky plot points that I can't quite figure out. So it it does really become a family affair sometimes. I think that, you know, when I'm writing it, it's such a more prolonged experience than when a reader is reading it. So sometimes so much of the writing process is about, you know, word choice and some of those. Smaller details that that you know, when an author or when a, a reader reads it, you know, they absorb it at such a faster pace. So I think that when I'm actually writing, I may not have that same emotional connection. I think that that hits me more like when I finished a draft or when my editor and I are done revising and I go back and give it just one final read. You know, that's kind of when I really have that emotional connection to the story and the characters.
1: When I was listening to you say that, it made me kind of wonder when you when you speak about this book at, at events, and I'll remind everyone, I'm speaking today with Mary Kubica. She is the author of The Other Misses. It will be published this month by Park Row Books. You are going on tour, and this is your sixth novel. Do you still get the question from readers if anything in your narratives connects to your personal life or...
0: Yeah, I, I would say that they're they're purely fictional. Um, There might be some of those tiny details that I pull from my my real life, but it's the kind of thing that I don't think anybody would pick up on. You know, my husband or my kids or my mother, they might pick up on it, but it's, it's typically small. You know, it's something that I heard that just, you know, a phrase or just something that really grabbed my interest.
1: I would like to ask you a sort of general question about the thriller genre of literature. What subcategory do you feel most reflects your work?
0: Yeah, I think I would say um, either domestic suspense or psychological suspense.
1: How do you feel the thriller genre has changed or evolved since you wrote your first novel?
0: Yeah, you know, my first book came out in in two thousand fourteen at Gone Girl, Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. I believe that that was two thousand twelve, and to me, that sort of marks the beginning of this trend for the psychological thriller. And it's been really, really fun to see the evolution over it, of it over the last number of years. I think that it's just it's been really fulfilling for me to see so many female authors really come to this genre. There are plenty of wonderful male authors, too, but it seems to be these days um, a genre that is really dominated by women, and and I love it. And I have to say, just on a personal note, they are some of the most wonderful and supportive women I've had the pleasure of meeting. But it's just, you know, I think that, that what's so intriguing about the genre is it takes, you know, everyday, ordinary families and women, mothers, friends, um, and then it puts them in these really extraordinary situations. And so we get to see, you know, at the height of all this turmoil, how do people respond? What do they do, you know, when they find out some something horrible about their husband or their mother or their sister? And, you know, it's just kind of a step away from our everyday reality. And I think that that's what makes people love the, the genre so much.
1: Those are really good points. And in general, are you more drawn to writing female protagonists? I th- I just kind of went back to look at your body of work and it seemed like... The most of the primary character, the main characters, or the grounding characters were female.
0: That you are absolutely right. I have I have written um, a handful of male narrators um, in *The Good Girl*, *Pretty Baby*, *Don't You Cry*, but my last couple of books have definitely been predominantly female narrators, and it's it's not necessarily intentional. I think that when I sit down, you know, and really get into a new book, I think to myself, who can tell this story best? Or who can bring something, some kind of, you know, vital information to the story? Who do we need to hear from? And so, you know, the last couple of books, I feel like it has, it's needed to be women. <laughs> but not because they're women, but because, you know, they're the ones that I think specifically that character needs to tell the story. I enjoy writing male, male narrators, too. I feel like with whatever character I write, there's sort of a getting-to-know-you period. When I begin a novel, um, I like to think that, you know, it's just... This, this character is somebody I have just met. You know, I don't know them. Conversations may be a little awkward, a little forced, you know. And from there, though, it's like during the writing process, we become fast friends, and I know exactly what that character would say or do.
1: Absolutely. And circling back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago, there's, and just to, just to clarify, Sadie, Camille, and Mouse are, are narrators in the book. Was there one that felt more natural to write as you were working through the drafts?
0: Yeah, I would say Sadie, for sure, just because she's a mother. She has two, um, two sons, Otto and Tate. You know, she's dealing with some, some things there. Her oldest son has been bullied. And, and you know, I feel, like, I feel like I could kind of get that. You know, I could, I could have an emotional connection to Sadie that I, I definitely couldn't have to the character of Camille. I think of the three of them, Mouse was the most difficult to write. It, it took me a little bit longer to get her voice. And I, Mouse is told in third person, which is, I think, if I if I'm correct, it is the only the only character that I've ever written in third person up to this voice. But I just felt that that was the way to do her story justice.
1: You mentioned earlier that through the evolution of thriller writing, that you've been delighted to see more female authors um, publish their stories. I'd love to know what authors influenced your writing.
0: Oh, absolutely, there's so many, <laughs> but I I would say uh, Megan Abbott um, Carolyn Kepneys, Gilly McMillan, B. A. Paris, Ruth Ware, Heather Gudenkoff. There's just, you know, this wonderful group of female authors out there. And I never, I I get asked quite a bit, you know, well, is there a book in particular or one author in particular that has influenced me? And it's really hard to narrow it down to just one book or one author. I feel like um, as an avid reader myself, I'm I'm always learning. Every time I pick up a new book to read, I think I'm always paying attention to the way that the authors write, the way they do dialogue, you know, words that they use that just kind of grab me.
1: I think that makes perfect sense to everyone who reads a lot. (laughs) It is very difficult to narrow it down. Well, there's a, a related question that I love to ask guests. And is there a, a book that you like to recommend that maybe no one has ever heard of?
0: Yeah, I I don't know that nobody's ever heard of, but I don't I don't think that it got the praise that it deserved. But T. Greenwood, Tammy Greenwood, came out with a book called Where I Lost Her. That's probably been I want to say three or four years now. It's just it's phenomenal. The it's book about a woman, she is vacationing in rural Vermont, and she runs out for an errands one evening. And as she's making her way back to the cabin where they're staying, she encounters um, a young girl in the middle of the road. But by the time that this woman can get out and, and, and go get the girl and figure out what's going on, you know, why this young girl is alone in the road at night, she vanishes into the woods and, and this woman is not able to get to her. While you know she goes to the police but as it turns out you know nobody's filed a missing child report they can't find this girl and so there becomes the question of was there really a child in the street that night or did this woman test imagine her and for what reasons and it's really it's, it's about motherhood it's this you know, it's just this very moving, emotionally charged, psychological suspense novel, and I highly recommend it.
1: That's a wonderful recommendation, and I noticed that it had a rural setting. <laughs> it
0: did! <laughs> I'm obviously drawn to these rural settings. Yeah, no,
1: I the consistency is good. I m- mentioned, or I may not have mentioned in the introduction, um, but I will now, that The Other Misses um, is being adapted for the screen, I think, for Netflix, and you are at, listed as an executive producer. Is there anything that you can share about the timeline for release, or just the process itself for taking your book and transitioning it into a screenplay?
0: Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm beyond thrilled. This is just, this is just so incredibly amazing. Me, but you're, you're absolutely right. It was Netflix that adapt, adapted um, it for film or is adapting it for film, I should say. And they have a wonderful screenwriter right now adapting it. His name is Jack Thorne. My understanding is that he is just in the process of finishing revisions to the screenplay. So very soon it should be ready to go. And then the next, the next part is actually casting it and then filming it. So I, I think that we're looking hopefully at like 2021 release.
1: I'm excited too. And I have to imagine everyone's asking you, who are you going to cast? <laughs> I won't ask you that because I know that's that's in the future, but you know what's really fun for a reader when they're reading a novel like this, and they know that it's going to be adapted for a film. They might start imagining certain actors uh, that would that would be perfect.
0: It's so it's so incredibly fun, you know, to just think about it and um, you know imagine it on on the TV. I just it'll it'll be amazing when it happens.
1: Well, it's thrilling. And just a couple more questions while I have you. Are you able to share anything about what you're working on next?
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I turned in a draft of the next book. So um, because I haven't gotten my editor's feedback and, and all that, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk in any detail about it. But I will say that I'm I'm really excited about it. You know, books are are funny because you would think that as, as a writer, you learn and get better with each book, but it's not necessarily true. You know, I feel like some come a little bit easier and some books just fight me the entire way. But this is one that just, came so well together. Um, It took a little while to get my feet off the ground, but once I started, I was just off and running. And it was a wonderful process to write. I just enjoyed it so much. And um, my early feedback from my editor is that she's really loving it. I I got an update when she was 20% in, and she said that she had not made any marks on the manuscript yet. So that's kind of the best news an author can hope for.
1: Um, Wow, you guys have a good working relationship. You could probably almost read each other's minds at this point.
0: (laughs) I have learned so much from her, you know, and I think having worked together on all of my books, it's really been hugely beneficial when I actually am writing, you know, I can kind of take feedback that she's given from previous novels and hopefully apply it right away.
1: That's so exciting to hear about. Well, I want to uh, let readers know where they can learn uh, more about you and your books. And I mentioned earlier that you are going on tour soon.
0: Absolutely. I have a website, marykubika.com, and on there I have all of my events listed, so you can find me right there. I'm also on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter.
1: Well, my guest today is Mary Kubica. Her new novel is The Other Misses. It's published by Park Row Books, and you've been listening to WERA-FM 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. You can always find me at realfictionradio.com. Mary, thank you so much for coming to the program today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: If you enjoyed today's program, episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Next week on Real Fiction, journalist Anthony Loewenstein joins me from Jerusalem to discuss his new book, Pills, Powder, and Smoke, a work of reportage based on years of covering the international drug trade And observing the role of the United States in the war against drugs. Here is a preview of our discussion. How would you summarize the role of the United States in the international drug trade?
2: Central and vital, and that's mostly been a bad thing. Um, Look, the U.S.'s role has evolved. It's not the same as the 1970s, it's definitely changed. The US's influence, in fact, is declining. To any, I mean, I say that in a general political sense. Globally, the world's becoming much more multipolar. The role of the US, the influence of the US, while still the global superpower, and that will remain for a number of years, its power is definitely declining with the rise of other states, which are not more democratic, such as China, but certainly much more influential than they were 10, 20 years ago. And that also impacts drug policy. So whereas years ago, if any country dared tried to want to legalise marijuana or any other drugs, the US would almost um, threaten invasion. I mean, I'm generalising, I'm sort of exaggerating, but there has been a sense that the US could dictate so much of global drug policy.